Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Grant Amato had been struggling to get his life back on track after a pretty rough year. When his family members began working to cut him off from the love of his life, he chose to do whatever it took to spend more time with her. This is Monsters. Grant Amato was one of three sons of Chad and Margaret Amato. When the parents met, Margaret already had a three-year-old son named Jason, and after the couple married, Chad adopted Jason and he officially became an Amato. Jason said during his testimony that he didn't remember a life without Chad being his father. He said that he was a very stern, very particular person. Everything was in its place, straight and tucked in. If he was going to have a serious discussion with someone, he would make a list in one color, then make notes with another color while talking to the person. Jason says that his father could get overly angry, but he had never seen him be physically abusive to anyone in the house. Chad was a pharmacist who worked in a conventional pharmacy role before he started working for a call center where people such as doctors or other pharmacists would call in to get pharmacy instructions. Chad was described as being very focused on the future and what he worked for, and he was stressed about the cost of a second home they owned in Tennessee. 
Chad had purchased a house with at least four acres in the mountains, about an hour away from Gatlinburg, to move to when he and Margaret retired. Apparently, they were having a problem with feral hogs destroying the property, and Chad was spending a lot more time and money maintaining the house than he wanted to. Margaret was the supervisor for a transcription company. She had started off as a medical transcriptionist and worked her way up the ladder until she got to management. She worked from home in her own small office on the main floor of the house. A few years after getting married, Chad and Margaret had a son together, Cody, and then had Grant a few years later. Jason said that in 1989, his parents bought a piece of land off Fort Christmas Road in Shulota, Florida, and Chad designed and built their family home. Each boy got their own bedroom, and they had a game room and almost three acres for the boys to play on. For Margaret, there was a nearby stable that she used to board a former racehorse that she would eventually rescue named Lady. In around 2009, a hungry mare would wander into their property and eventually she was able to save the horse and begin rehabilitating it. The owner of the stable said that Margaret worked tirelessly to get Lady back into riding condition. Even after Lady died, Margaret would regularly ride her bike down to the stable to visit with friends and brush the horses. Grant described how he and Cody became good friends. Uh, me and Cody had the quintessential rough, like, fighting each other and whatnot when we were the younger. Love, the love-hate right. typical siblings. But then I would say, like, my junior year of high school, we were all on the weightlifting team together. Uh, that's where I got to know a lot of, like, his guy friends. Um, and, you know, we just, we stopped, like, arguing at that point. And then... We all, you know, we decided to go to nursing school together. We decided to go to the, the nurse anesthesia school together. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we did everything together. I mean, we he was were, the better student. He was the better student in everything up through nursing school. And then I was actually the better student in nurse anesthesia school. But uh, there was like a, again, kind of like... Are you the, guys, sorry, no, 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 are, no. You, are you guys at the same time in the same classes? Yeah. So you're the but not, exact not, not same for nursing school, not for nursing. No, no, school. I mean for the, for the anesthesiology. Yeah, we sat right next to each other. So you're in there doing things together. So you got somebody to study with. Yeah, somebody to work to bounce things off of and work yeah. with. Yeah, and we would do that all the time. We we're burning the midnight oil. But you were better at it. Yeah, uh, and that was the one time that he actually admitted that I was uh, didactically more competent than him in that field. Um, and then who's better at weightlifting? He was. Okay. He, he he broke a number of school records. Uh, I think he was like the 129 weight class. I was the 119 weight class. But uh, he was he was definitely stronger mm -hmm. in uh, in high school. And then, um, but yeah, uh, we were close. I mean, I mean, like bonded, you know. So a normal brotherly relationship up until high school, where they became extremely close. Jason was a few years older and was out of the house by the time Grant and Cody were finishing high school. The brothers had plans to both become nurses and then go to nurse anesthetist school together. After that, they were going to buy matching BMWs and then their parents' house when they retired and moved to their retirement home in Tennessee. The plan started out okay, and when Grant graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing in 2011, the brothers enrolled in the same nursing anesthetist school. They literally sat next to each other in class. Even though Grant claims that he was the better student during this time, he still managed to fail out of the program. 
Cody would go on to complete the program and land a job as a nurse anesthetist at a local hospital making a very decent amount of money. Grant managed to find a job as a nurse at a hospital and worked there for about five years, but was eventually accused of stealing medication. In June of 2018, they fired him and pressed charges, but after Cody paid $8,000 to hire a lawyer for his brother, the charges were dropped. According to Grant, he said that the fact that he now had an arrest on his record made him not able to get a job and he spent most of his time in his room playing video games, trying to become a famous Twitch streamer. You know, kind of like a YouTuber, just not as cool. This solitary time playing video games is also when Grant discovered the wide, wonderful world of cam girls. He said in an interview that the first time he talked to a cam girl, the first one was a woman named Sylvie who operated out of Bulgaria. He immediately fell in love with her and began believing that they had a special relationship. I mean, outside of the fact that he was literally paying to talk to her. How much was he paying, you might ask? Well, he's going to tell you. How much do you think he spent on this? Because it's kind of pricey. Yeah. Uh, 90 tokens and, and $5,000 for, for how many tokens? No, no, it's uh, $600 for, for 5000 For 5000 yeah. okay. So how much do you think he spent um, on this? Probably close to like $200,000, I'd say. $200,000? Yeah. And where'd the money come from? Money came from me, uh, my brother, and then my dad. Did they know where the money was going to? They didn't know that it was going to uh, a cam a cam model. I, I was about? saying that it was going towards my Twitch streaming, uh, like, like put, yeah, like advertising, like putting my name out there and that, that type of thing. $200,000 on a cam girl in six months and he thinks that she's legitimately interested in him. It's $600 for 5,000 tokens, and the cam girl takes 90 tokens a minute. Grant said that he was talking to Sylvie for about four hours a day. Four hours of time would cost him 21,600 tokens, which means he would need 4.3 blocks of 5,000 tokens. That would be over $2,500 a day. That works out to be more than $77,000 a month. Clearly, he wasn't talking to this woman every day because it would only take him two and a half months to rack up two hundred grand in debt at that rate. He said that the money came from himself, his dad, and his brother. He was telling them that he was buying advertising for his new Twitch streaming business, but he was really spending it all on a cam girl. On top of the money it even took to talk to Sylvie, he was leading her to believe that he was rich and successful. In the world he lived in while talking to Sylvie, he already drove that BMW that he had dreamed of with his brother years earlier. In order to keep up appearances, he would send her lingerie and sex toys to use during her performances. After the credit cards that Grant stole from both his father and Cody got maxed out, he would just lie about promoting his Twitch stream and steal more credit cards. Unfortunately, Grant's family members did everything they could to keep the young man out of trouble, but all that did was enable him to continue his behavior. Eventually, Chad and Cody looked into the charges and figured out that Grant was spending all of their money on a cam girl. They started restricting Grant in ways they thought would keep him from talking to Sylvie, but he would always find ways to talk to her. Grant and Cody were also big fans of anime and had planned a trip to Japan with another friend named Jericho Fine. 
They went on their 10-day trip at the beginning of December of 2018, and since Grant didn't have a job at the time, Cody paid for all of his expenses. The trio went to Tokyo and Kyoto and had a great time. It wasn't until the day they were meant to leave when a problem arose. Uh, Cody got into the shower. Um, Grant told me that he was going to go down to the lobby and, like, find something to eat. Uh, so I didn't think anything of it. And Cody got out of the shower and asked me where Grant was. And I said he went down to the lobby to get something to eat. And Cody immediately checked the closet for his duffel bag and then said, where's Grant's duffel bag? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I didn't notice him take anything. And so Cody left me at the hotel for t more than two hours. I was just kind of sitting in the lobby and while he went to find uh, Grant, and he was messaging me on WhatsApp, uh, trying to keep me posted. And he found him at, like, a, a pachinko, like a, like a gambling-type building, and I guess he was on his tablet using uh, the Wi-Fi. At first, I thought it was weird that Cody would immediately check for Grant's duffel bag, but Jericho explained during his testimony that Cody seemed to have Grant on a tight leash during the trip. He said that Cody would never let Grant get too far away and would yell at him, get back over here. This seemed to be part of the process of trying to keep Grant from spending more money on cam girls, something that he was caught doing the day they left Japan. It wasn't until later that Jericho discovered how Grant had paid for his time with Sylvie that day in Japan. I was out to dinner and I went to pay for the dinner with the Discover card and it had been frozen. Um, so I contacted my father since it's like a family account and he sent me a screenshot of like three, uh, three uh, charges on the Discover. Um, one went through and then the other two were denied, but they were for uh, my free cam tokens. Grant had stolen his friend's credit card number in order to buy tokens to talk to Sylvie before sneaking off to a place with Wi-Fi. This dude wasn't just being selfish to talk to a girl. He had a serious addiction. When the boys came back from Japan, Chad began pressuring Grant even harder about getting a job and repaying some of his debts. After an argument with his father, Grant left their house and didn't tell anyone where he was going. Jason said that he ran away during his testimony, which just sounds wrong to say about a 29-year-old adult, but that's essentially what he did. Family members reported him missing and told the police that he was depressed and that they were afraid that he might hurt himself. Margaret said she got a text from Grant saying he was, quote, really tired of everything, end quote, and, quote, just going to handle it his own way, end quote. It turned out that Grant had gone to his Aunt Donna's house and she let him stay there for a few days. It wasn't long before she started seeing charges on her bank account that she didn't make. When she realized that it was Grant who was stealing her money, she wanted to press charges, but Chad and Margaret begged her not to. Cody ended up repaying his aunt the money that Grant had stolen. At this point, Grant had stolen from his father, his brother, one of his best friends, and his aunt, and Chad had to remortgage his house in order to cover $150,000 worth of Grant's debt. Donna said that Chad had told her over the phone, quote, yeah, I'm going to have to work a few more years than I thought I'd have to, but it's okay. I'll do it for Grant. I don't want him to go to jail, end quote. All because he was addicted to a cam girl. 
the family made some calls and found an addiction recovery facility that would take him. On December 23, 2018, Chad, Margaret, Cody, and Jason all went to Donna's house early in the morning and had a sort of intervention for Grant. Cody took charge of the situation and talked to his younger brother about his obsession with Sylvie. He told them that they wanted him to go to a facility and talk to them about it. They just wanted things to be better for him. Grant initially got angry, but eventually gave in and got into the car with his father, mother, and Cody. Jason didn't go with them to drop him off at Cornerstone Recovery Center in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was the last time Jason would see his father or Cody. Grant was supposed to be in a 60-day program at the recovery center, but he was released after 12 days. According to him, the counselor said that he was just in a little rut and didn't need to be in a full program. It seems as though he minimized his addiction to the cam girl, because if they knew exactly what he would done in order to talk to Sylvie, they would have put him into an addiction program with no hesitation. Cody ended up paying $15,000 for Grant to have a spot in the program, which wasn't utilized. During his interview with police, Grant said that he thinks the facility refunded $3,000 since he didn't stay the full 60 days, but wasn't sure if Cody ever got the refund. Once Grant was back from Cornerstone, Chad had created a list of rules that Grant needed to follow in order to stay in the house. I guess I would call it uh, like an ultimatum. Uh, some options that were uh, given to Grant to choose between uh, after leaving the facility. And um, based off of some of his choices, there were uh, specific rules and regulations that uh, my father had laid out for him. And, uh, and give, give some example. I mean, I, I'm not asking to read the entire document. The jury has it. It's going to go back with them, and they can read it. But give the, uh, the jury some examples of what, um, what are the options given to them. All right. So uh, the first thing that was covered was living arrangements. You know, does he want to live at home? move out on his own, go to the military. Um, looks like my father pre-wrote this and, uh, and then updated it with a different color pen, I'm assuming with a discussion with Grant. So there are some markings and highlightations of things that were discussed and chosen. It looks like Grant um, chose to live at home uh, he understood that the family would not cover or pay any current remaining future debts, etc. Um, uh, it goes on to say that, uh, you know, he, some rules are no post-midnight internet use, um, no more all-nighters online, uh, limited TV, install a new AT&T modem, um, for logging, wireless, and hard traffic use. It, it says that he terminated his current phone um, and set him up with a new phone that I guess didn't have data or the ability to go on the Internet. Uh, some responsibilities where he had to get a job. Um, he had uh, some debts that he had to take care of. Um, no savings. He owed the family some money, owed the family an apology. Um, it's very detailed. 
Chad felt like he needed to severely restrict Grant's abilities at the home in order to keep him from getting into more financial trouble. He didn't know of any other way of keeping his son from blowing more money on a cam girl. He even contacted Sylvie in Bulgaria. It informed, it states that it informed Grant that they had reached out to this woman to let them know or to let her know some of the things that Grant had been saying weren't 100% true. Um, and that he wasn't allowed to communicate with her anymore uh, based off of those lies. Unfortunately, it sounds like his mother wasn't as strict. One of his rules was that I wasn't allowed to talk to the woman anymore that I had been talking to. Um, but I guess you could say behind the scenes, my mom would let me talk to her through her cell phone using Twitter. Um, and, you know, she would tell me, like, look, you got to keep it, you have to keep it just basic, because if you say anything or if you entice anything or do anything like that, it might lead her to say something to, like, my dad or something like that. Because, How would she get in touch with him? Because apparently when I was in Cornerstone, my dad told her, because he had, like, hacked my computer or something like that, and then he found everything. The electronics guy like you and your brother? Except he's more of that, like, hacking level, like, able to do all that stuff. So he had found, you know, um, like, just the stuff that was related to her. And then, you know, he, like, he like erased my whole entire computer. He put a password on it. So it's like, even when I came back up until Thursday, like, I wasn't able to go onto my own computer to look at anything. I mean, he's treating you like a small child. Right. And... Rightfully so. I mean, spending that amount of money, I was acting childish. I, sure. I can kind of get it. Grant is fully aware that what he's done is wrong. He knows that he should feel that way to not look like the bad guy to these detectives. But Grant doesn't really care that what he's doing is wrong because he's an addict. He has to find a way to get his fix, and eventually, Chad finds out that Grant has been talking to Sylvie, and according to Grant, he kicks him out of the house. Grant told the detectives that Chad told him that if he ever set foot on their property again, he would kill him. During his interview, his first version of events has him leaving the house between 9 and 9.30 p.m. So I left. Okay. And then what time do you think you left about? Oh, God. If it's 6.30, the argument started, I'd, how long do you think before you left? I'd say, like, 9 or 9.30 or so. Then he continues to tell detectives that he drove down the road and waited on the side of the road until Cody got home at about 9.30. Cody pulled up next to him and Grant told him that he was going to be somewhere nearby, and according to Grant, Cody gave him his debit card to use to survive. After Cody drove off, Grant said that he stayed in the same spot for a couple of hours just in case anything happened, they knew where he was. The reason for that was because his cell phone had been turned off by Chad, so he didn't have any means of communication. Then he drove to a nearby Publix grocery store and parked next to the building, and he claims that he slept in his car. The following morning, he woke up, changed into a suit, and drove to an interview he had at Express Scripts, which is a prescription drug management company. His interview was at 10 a.m., and afterwards he went to a Verizon wireless store to try to get his phone turned back on. They told him that they couldn't help him because the account was in his father's name. He then tells detectives that he thought about going back to his house, but only drove down the road in his neighborhood and changed his mind. 
he went a few other places, got some food at Panera, and went to get a room at the Doubletree Hotel. The detectives brought up how he was paying for things, and Cody's debit card came up again. I had used Cody's card to pay for one of my bills that was outstanding. Uh, it was just one of those from that site. It was just like a, a bill that had backed how much up was that? in there. Five ninety nine ninety nine. Okay. Um, Cody, how you were doing that? Yeah. He said it's okay to do that? He said to use this to, like, survive until things can get figured out. Because he knows that I only have, you know, a few hundred dollars to my name. When he told you, you that that night that you right. could use his card and pay off what needed to be paid off? To, yeah, to pay, he, he said to use it for, like, necessity. Did he give it to you? Yes. He gave it to you, said, here, take this and just yes. do whatever. But that was normal for him, though. He was, yeah, he was, because he had always... He was fitting, putting most of your bills. Right, the time. right. Okay. He explained that he used Cody's debit card to pay one of his bills. He claims that it was a bill from the cam girl site that had been backed up. So he's been kicked out of his house and has almost no money to his name, but paying off a bill to a cam girl site is top priority? No. What really happened is that Grant used Cody's debit card to buy more credits to pay to talk to Sylvie online the night he left his house. The internet history on Grant's Microsoft Surface shows that he paid for tokens and then used the cam girl site at about 3 o'clock in the morning on January 25th. At this point, Grant has been sitting in a room at the sheriff's department talking to investigators for over two hours and he's not asked why he's there or if anything has happened to his family. Cody was described as an extremely dedicated worker. He was always at the hospital early, getting ready to take care of patients and talking with his colleagues about the day's plans. He had never missed a day of work and always stayed late when needed. The shifts for a nurse anesthetist were 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. They worked 16-hour days, and any hours worked after 12 hours were paid at double time, so people didn't regularly volunteer to leave. Cody worked with a man named Chris Sisko, who described their day at work on January 24, 2019. Uh, our days are normally filled. Um, they're very busy. Um, but I do remember that uh, that afternoon, it had kind of slowed down a little bit, and um, there, uh, so what happens is, is there's four of us that are scheduled that 16-hour um, shift. Um, and again, if it, for some reason, if it slows down in the afternoon, um, you, uh, what we'll do is either we have to stay there on call, even though there's no cases going on, or if there's even sometimes no cases going on, sometimes the, the um, head anesthesiologist that's running the board for the day who's in control of the board and of when we get to go and come, um, they will first ask us if there's any volunteers, if anybody wants to leave early. Um, well, that day I remember that um, none of us wanted to leave early. Um, so um, instead of any volunteers, what will happen is, um, they will, will put all of our names in a hat and draw names out of a hat. And, uh, Cody's name came up, uh, first and, uh, he was going to leave at like 930, uh, that afternoon. And then, um, since that, my name that was, evening, afternoon or evening, you said afternoon. Yeah. 930 PM. Okay. Go yes, ahead. Sir. I'm sorry. Yep. 930 PM is when, uh, he was going to leave because we didn't need him. And then I would stay until 11 to cover until the night guy came in to cover the night shift. It was slow and Cody was picked to leave first, but he actually left a little early. Chris described Cody wandering off to make a phone call, so he decided to sit down and have some lunch. 
At about 9.15, Cody popped his head in the door and said he was going to leave. He told Chris that he'd see him in the morning since they both had another shift together. Chris said that the next day, he clocked into the hospital at 6.19 a.m. They had to be there by 7 a.m., but were allowed to clock in up to an hour early. He said that Cody would normally already be on site by the time he got there, but that day he wasn't. Uh, when I first got in, I had clocked in um, at my where we clock in at, and you walk right by that, and there's the uh, the surgery OR board where you can see where your case assignment is for the day. I had ran into a colleague of ours um, that typically works overnight, and uh, she had said, um, Cody's not here. I haven't seen him yet. He's not in pre-op. Um, you know, have you heard from him? And, of course, I was like, no, I just got here. I haven't heard from him yet. Um, and so um, I went about, you know, the next couple minutes. I was I went to pre-op just to see for myself to see if he was there, and he wasn't there. So I, I looked at whatever room he was supposed to be in, and he wasn't in there. Uh, so then uh, I ran into the colleague again, and she had expressed, like, a little bit more concern this time. And... Um, so I said, well, why don't I just try to call him or text him? So I tried to text him. Um, and I know that um, when Cody, Cody has an iPhone like I do, and I know that um, when you have the iMessage, that when you send a text message, um, typically it goes through in blue, which means that the phone received the text message. Um, and so when I text him, you know, hey, where are you? Um, it went through just green, like the phone didn't receive the text message, like it's either out of service or it's dead. Um, Had that ever happened before? No, sir. Cody oh. always had his no. Cody always had his phone on. It was always he always had a charger on him. He always had it clipped to him. Um, if I ever throughout the day, if I had a question about anything, um, I, I knew that if I shot Cody a text, he would text me right back with you know advice or whatever. Um, so then. When it went through green, it was concerning. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just try to give him a buzz. So I tried to call the, the phone, and it went, uh, it, you know, rang a couple times and went straight to voicemail. To explain to anyone who hasn't used an iPhone, if you send a text from one iPhone to another, it will actually use the Apple software iMessage, which is now just called Messages. The same text will also pop up on your computer if you use a Mac. The text bubble in the app will be green when you're texting through messages. If you text a non-iPhone, it will just send it as a standard SMS, and the text bubble will be blue. At the same time, if an iPhone user texts another iPhone user, and the phone is off or it's out of service, the text bubble will appear blue because the iPhone sending the message can't confirm that the recipient is using the messages service. Chris made a few other calls, and nobody had heard from Cody, and since it was now past 7 a.m., Chris called 911 and asked if they would perform a welfare or wellness check. Seminole County Sheriff's Deputy Todd Motorson arrived at the Amato home at about 9 a.m. He knocked on the door, pounded on windows, called out Cody's name, and even used the air horn on his sheriff's vehicle, which was a Ford F-150. He called Cody's cell phone, Chad's cell phone, and Margaret's cell phone, but got no answer. Cody's car was in the driveway, so Deputy Motorson believed there was cause to enter the home. 
After getting permission from a supervisor and waiting for backup to arrive, he used a knife to jimmy open the deadbolt on the back door. There was a large cabinet in front of the door, and they had to push it out of the way. It's unclear why the cabinet was in front of the door. Sometimes people will put something like that in front of a door they never use. But I also noticed in the deputy's body cam footage that the windows were covered with paper. It's never discussed anywhere. Once inside, they found the bodies of Chad, Margaret, and Cody Amato. All three had been killed with gunshot wounds to the head. Investigators believe that Margaret was shot first. There were gunshot wounds identified on her face and head. And of note, on the left occipital scalp, which is the back of the head on the left side, um, there was an oval gunshot wound entrance. Was did you observe an exit wound? Yes, and then so the uh, other wound on the right cheek was a exit wound. Margaret had been sitting at her computer, and someone came up behind her and shot her in the back of the head. The last activity on the computer was at 4:44 p.m. January 24th. It was believed that Chad was killed after he got home from work at about 5:30. So, beginning on the back of the right ear, uh, there's a gunshot wound entrance. And this one uh, was associated with some kind of abrasions on the, on the back of the ear. And it was focally lacerated or it was the skin was torn. And uh, I noticed that it went through the ear and then it re-entered through the tragus, which is an area that's commonly pierced by some people. Uh, of the ear, and it re-enters into the um, cranial cavity and then exits on the right forehead. So uh, it was one wound track with multiple different entrances, exits, and then uh, re-entries and re-exits. That one involved the uh, skin and soft tissue in the area. It involved the um, temporal bone of the skull. It goes through the right frontal lobe of the brain. It fractures the right frontal bone of the skull. And um, tell the jury the, the uh, direction of that particular bullet. And that course, wound course, was from back to front, and it's from right to left and upwards. The first shot to the back of Chad's head did not immediately kill him. When I first saw Chad's body in the kitchen... I asked the investigators if he had been moved. Uh, it was my instinct that he was not in the correct position or in the position that he had died in. Uh, based on my training and experience, uh, his taking in the entire crime scene, the blood patterns, the uh, movement in the blood in the kitchen, it seemed that he was not in the same positioning as he would have been at the time he died. And I'm going to show you again, States 41. Can you please point out to the jury what specifically led you to believe he was moved? Well, initially, when we arrived at the scene, we knew that there were two cartridge cases in the kitchen. However, we only saw the one bullet hole in the top portion of the kitchen cabinet. And that lined up with the blood pool on this side of the kitchen island, so the right side in this photograph. So we assumed, or I assumed, that 
that shot caused him to fall down. He bled. And then you can see these drops of blood. Everybody's cut themselves and dripped blood. Um, and some movement in the blood. And these palm prints. So it appeared that he was face down and possibly crawling around the kitchen floor. And then he ended up on this side where he bled more and died. So if somebody is crawling around and they just bleed out and die, you would assume that they would be face down. The evidence showed that Chad was shot in the back of the head. He crawled across the kitchen floor and was shot a second time in the back of the head. But he was face up when deputies found his body. It's believed that Chad was rolled over so that whoever shot him could clip a gun holster to his belt. Christine Snyder, who's the crime scene supervisor for the Seminole County Sheriff's Department, explained why the holster was unusual. The firearm was inside of a holster, which you can see on the screen. The holster had a metal clip, which attached it to the belt. However, it was placed between the pants and the belt, which would make it unstable. Uh, the clip, the metal clip was on the outside across the belt and the holster was inside of the belt between the pants and the belt. The gun itself was placed inside of the holster and it was in this position on his body, which was strange because we learned from his son Jason that he was right-handed. So if you're holding or if you're carrying a firearm and you want to draw it quickly, you're going to grab it here. And in this case, the grip isn't in the right location. So if somebody was carrying the firearm in this manner, they would most likely be left-handed and they would have to do a cross draw where they pull it out this way. Um, this is not a very common way to carry a firearm because it's a little bit harder to get to. It takes longer to pull it out. And I've heard of people who are left-handed who shoot right-handed, but it's very not as common for a right-handed person to shoot with their left hand. So normally, if you're carrying a firearm, you would probably put it inside of your pants for stability, especially a large gun like this, and he's a smaller individual. And you would have the grip towards the side. So then you can grab it quickly and pull it out. If you were carrying it the way that he has it, and you're right-handed, you would have to pull it out awkwardly, point it at yourself, and then point it towards somebody to fire it, which just doesn't make any sense. If you were right-handed and you were doing a cross draw, you would carry it on the other side and pull it out this way. But the only way that this is strange for a right-handed person to carry it this way. She shows the jury that the gun was clipped onto Chad's belt on the right side of his body with the handle of the gun pointing to the left. Since Chad was right-handed, he wouldn't be able to draw the gun with his right hand with the gun in that position. Not only was the position of the holster odd, but the fact that Chad had clearly crawled through blood, but the holster was perfectly clean, showed that the holster was placed on the body after the fact. The crime scene analyst also found a drop of blood on Chad's pants under the holster. Someone was trying to make it look like Chad had a gun on him prior to his death. Investigators believe Cody was the last to be shot. So on the right cheek, there's a gunshot wound entrance, and 
that wound involved the skin, the soft tissue in the area, the right maxillary bone of the face, the right sphenoid bone of the skull. It crosses the midline and involved the brainstem, and it continued to involve the left cerebellar hemisphere of the brain and the left occipital bone of the skull. And finally, on the um, back of the uh, head, there was a gunshot wound exit. Cody's body was found just inside the door that came into the house from the garage. He was still in his work scrubs and had the backpack he took with him to work. It appeared as if Cody was shot in the face the minute he walked in the door. Near Cody's body was one of the 9mm guns that he owned. The question became whether Cody had killed his parents and then himself. There were four shell casings collected from the scene which matched the amount of times the victims had been shot. Bullets collected from the scene were sent to the forensics lab for comparison, but strangely, the bullets were found to not have come from the shell casings. The shell casings had been fired from Cody's gun, but the bullets did not match the rifling of the same gun. Also, investigators found no gunshot residue on Cody's hands and there was no stippling on the bullet wound to his face. Stippling is when the skin gets burned by gunpowder when a gun is discharged close to the skin. The lack of stippling meant that the gun was fired from at least three feet away, not something that Cody could have done himself. So someone managed to get into the house without any signs of forced entry, shot all three family members, and attempted to make it look like a murder-suicide. The absence of Grant from the scene made him a prime suspect. Jason was also a suspect, but was quickly cleared. Crime scene analysts went to Jason's employer and searched him and his car. Then they searched his house. He had no injuries, and they found no blood or weapons anywhere. He also had an alibi, as he was out to dinner with his girlfriend and her daughters at the time authorities believed the crimes were committed. The morning of January 26, 2019, Grant woke up at the Doubletree Hotel and walked outside to get a bottle of water from his car. There were sheriffs outside who asked him to come to the sheriff's office and answer some questions. From there, Grant sat in an interview room for more than two hours, telling investigators all about his life and his relationship with his family without ever asking why he was there. The detectives finally tell him that something happened at his house, and he starts changing his story. When I had come back that other time, I crossed in front of the, the red, the dude's fence, the red blinking lights ones. What um, time was that? I can't, I can't remember. That was, that was Friday during the day. When you said you were going to come back. Right, yeah. Okay. But it was after you did your interview. Correct. Okay. Yeah. If you did that, you would have seen something. And there would be something out of the ordinary that you would have seen. If you passed that, you passed something out of the ordinary. What was it? I saw, like, a news van. And then, uh, I don't think there there might have been, like, a cop car. There there was, like, traffic being... being Human nature. Human nature. What do people do when I go back to my old neighborhoods? And I've lived a couple of places in Central Florida in the 23 years I've been here. I see something major going on. I get on my phone. Or I get on my computer. Some point, look, what, I wonder what's happened by my neighborhood. And look. Did and that even spark your attention? I was, there's, I a was, digi- there's a digital footprint of, of what, where I went on my phone. This right here phone, they can tell me I looked, I looked at these maps on my phone because it's on there. Right. The memory's there. You can't delete it. You can't. You came back to the neighborhood. You saw some things that are really out of the ordinary. Right. 
And I don't believe for a second that you thought that I'm not going to look. What's going on? What happened in my neighborhood? I, I, I mean, I didn't search it up on anything on any of the devices that I have. Did you search it somewhere else? On uh, when I had gone to the Panera, I searched for like top stories, Oviedo or Chuliota or something like that. And found what? And then I saw that there was, uh, it was like just the initial. Like it had like a video, but I didn't I didn't listen to the video, but it had just an initial thing of that there was shootings in Salt and Circle, but it didn't say like the address or who was involved. It was just like the, this is the preliminary. Was that on one of the news stations? Um, what was what was it, what was the site you searched? I can't. I honestly can't remember. The, you, I think you, it was one of the Weshes. But and you saw the story because we've seen the same stories. You've seen the story because there's a thing that will tell me. How long of the of the time you spent on that? Right. You saw what happened. Yeah, I was on there for like 20 seconds. Well, what was your thoughts when you reviewed that story? I was freaking out, and I like I didn't. I was just like blank. I didn't know what to do. He changes a story within that clip alone. He claims that he saw a news van in his neighborhood, but that he didn't search for what happened. Then he immediately says he did search, but he didn't read the story. He was freaking out about it, but spent more than two hours at the sheriff's office and never brought it up. They finally tell him his family is dead. They ask him what he thought happened in the home. So if anything happened in the home, to bring law enforcement there, what would you think happened? That there was a shooting. Between whom? I don't know. Between Cody and, and my dad. And why would you think that? To protect me or to help me or to do something with me. Grant told authorities multiple times up until this point that Cody told him, quote, he would take care of it, end quote. Grant staged the scene and then tried to plant the seed that Cody was going to kill their parents to protect him. They tell him that they know that Cody didn't shoot anybody. The evidence shows that nobody in the house fired a weapon. She, she, never, she never held a gun. She didn't have a gun that night. Fact. He never fired a gun. Fact. He never fired a gun. Never did. This is the person right here, Mom, who always stuck up for you. Something happened so bad that caused her death, your dad's death, and Cody. And I, I'll, I'll tell you just about how it happened. One, two, three, based on evidence. Based on evidence. I know he did not shoot your mom. I know he didn't shoot your dad. I know he didn't shoot himself. And I know from, from video surveillance camera in the neighborhood, nobody else came to that house. I know. I know I can account for everybody that went to the house. I know. So tell us what happened. I know it. Listen to me. Hey, I know. Video surveillance tells me everything that happened this night. I'm telling you. Of people that, that you'd be surprised who in your neighborhood has video. And I know that nobody, there's only four people was at this house during this time. One, two, three, four. They try to get him to confess, but he maintains his innocence. They take a little break, and when they come back, Grant's story has changed some more. Now Grant said that he was still home when Cody got home from work and that Cody began arguing with their father. 
it didn't help because Grant still had to leave. And then, so is it true that you still met Cody up the block, or was that... No, no. So you didn't meet him up the no. block? So why did you tell us that? I don't know. I don't know. I was talking to detectives about a very specific part of my day, and I just made a bunch of it up. Why the hell not? Grant's clothes are taken to be analyzed by forensics, and he's given some other clothes to wear. He asked to talk to his older brother, Jason, and Jason came down to the sheriff's office to talk to him. I, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't believe you. And I probably will have resentment for the rest of my life, whether you did it or you didn't do it. But I need closure. I need to know what happened to my mother, my father, and my brother, Cody. Because I wasn't there to fucking help. And that hurts me. That hurts me a lot, man. I may not have been able to stop you. You probably may have hurt me too. But at least I would have known what happened. And I'm in fucking who knows what now. I'm lost. And it scares me that you want to leave here and not face what happened. Because... You're putting my life at risk then. You're putting Donna's life at risk, Grandma's life. How do we know what you're going to do? Clearly, Grant hasn't fooled him. The sheriff's put Grant up at a different hotel since his room at the Doubletree has been searched and his property has been seized. In the room, they found a pair of gloves that tested positive for gunshot residue on the outside. They find the information on his tablet that he had purchased more tokens with Cody's debit card in order to talk to Sylvie the same card that Grant claimed that Cody gave him, but it's clear that Grant took it from his brother after he shot him in the face. When they searched Grant's computer, they found pictures of credit cards that belonged to his parents, his grandparents, an uncle, and one of his cousins. He was willing to steal from anybody in order to talk to a woman that he thought was having a personal relationship with him. People don't make you pay to talk to them when they really want to have a personal relationship with you. The search of his computer also included logs that a USB drive had been plugged in at 11.32 p.m. on January 24th and unplugged at 12.27 a.m. on January 25th. They showed that Chad's iPhone had been plugged into Grant's computer at 11.39 p.m. on January 24th. It was unable to connect to the computer because it would have needed prior permission, so it was unplugged. Then the phone was placed into recovery mode and plugged back into the computer at 11.43 p.m. the same night. There had been a search history on Grant's tablet about how to unlock an iPhone. The logs of Chad's iPhone showed that the USAA bank app had been unlocked using a fingerprint at 12.08 a.m. on January 25th. The defense actually brought this up thinking it was a way to show that Chad could have still been alive after investigators theorized that they had been killed. I think what they really showed was that Grant had pressed his dead father's finger against the phone so he could log into his bank app. One thing that investigators didn't find was any evidence that Grant looked up news about what had happened in his neighborhood. One of the only things he said that was true was that he didn't look up the news after seeing the news van in his neighborhood. He only said he did because he thought it would make him seem less guilty. Investigators found a note in Grant's car that read as if Cody had written it. It said, Grant, I'll take care of all your problems. I just need you back. I can't live without you. 
I said I'd take care of all your problems at the house, and I have. No one will bother you again regarding this. Just please come home. I can't take this again. If you think I'm part of the problem here, then I've really lost you, and I can't take that loss after everything. When investigators asked Grant about the note, he claimed that he had written the note to memorialize what Cody had said to him the last time they talked. He was trying to make it sound like Cody had taken care of his problems, a.k.a. killed his parents, and that he couldn't do it again, a.k.a. killed himself. Authorities never found the gun that actually fired the bullets that killed the Amados, but not long before the trial began, Blake Turpin, a friend of Grant and Cody's, made a discovery. In the end of May, I stopped a full-time position and was taking a little sabbatical, doing contract work. Um, a couple weeks in, I got antsy and started doing some spring cleaning. Um, I went into the closet and was getting rid of some older stuff, and uh, when I picked up the gun boxes, I noticed that one was significantly, significantly lighter than it should be. Um, I opened it up and noticed the firearm and one of the two magazines it came with were missing. Now, did you happen to notice if any ammunition was missing? Uh, I did, as I continued to go through the closet. Um, I noticed the basket. Um, like I said, when I, you buy range ammo, it tends to you know do bulk. So usually I buy a thousand rounds, and they come in little sealed bags. Um, one of those bags had been kind of picked open, um, and I went through and double checked, and there were 94 out of the 100 rounds still in the bag. Um, I checked the whole closet, moved the shelf under it. Didn't see anything lying on the floor. But just so we're clear, the bags themselves, they're not like Ziploc. Are they Ziploc bags? No, no. They're um, kind of like heat sealed, closed. So in order to open it, you actually have to tear the... Correct. Okay. And uh, throughout your years and times you've been shooting, uh, have you ever yourself uh, tore a bag open partially like that and taken out just a handful of bullets? No, the ammo that I buy that comes in those bags is, like I said, just cheap, ranged, repackaged ammo. Um, so when I go to the range, I would take the little ammo can, which is, you know, the little bucket, and if I needed to put more, I'd open the bag, dump the whole thing in. Um, I do have a concealed carry gun, but I don't load it with the range ammo. I have a different, um, nicer bullet that goes in that one. He had discovered that the gun and ammo was missing at about 10 p.m. and reported it to the police the following morning. When authorities learned of the missing gun, they questioned Blake, and he said that only one person had been alone in his bedroom recently. When we came back from dinner, um, we had gone out to a uh, Japanese restaurant, um, and uh, on the way back, uh, Jericho and uh, Grant both had indicated they needed to use the restroom. Um, Jericho needed to do something a little more substantial, so I asked him to use the hallway bathroom. Um, Grant, I told him he could go on back to my room and use the restroom. So, where is the restroom in relation to your room and closet in your home? Yep, uh, if you walk in the door to my room, it's essentially, it's just a square. It's the front left corner. If you would turn right immediately, the Next thing you'd find is the closet door, and just past that is the bathroom. And so in order to go to the bathroom, one would have to enter your room? Correct. Where was the Jericho 9mm stored in your closet? 
Uh, again, on the shelving unit I have up there, I have um, three different gun boxes, um, and it would be inside of the box that it came in. Now, uh, how long can you estimate that uh, the defendant was up in the area of your room? Um, I would say no more than 10 minutes. I was uh, playing the game out front with Cody. And to your knowledge, was anyone else uh, up in your room other than Grant, other than Mr. Amato? No, that's pretty rare. I don't usually send people back there. Um, I also have a pit bull, um, and I tend to keep my door shut when he's uh, when we're home and when I'm not home because um, I don't like him in there crawling around on the bed. It's believed that Grant saw an opportunity to take a gun from Blake's closet, and that's the gun that he used to kill his family. That gun has never been recovered. During the trial, one of the Amato's neighbors, Jennifer Sawyer, said that sometime on the night of January 24th, at maybe 8.30 or 9.30 p.m., she heard gunshots. She said she didn't remember exactly how many, but it was less than five. She said she brought it up to her husband, but he didn't hear the shots and he just shrugged it off. It wasn't unusual to hear gunshots since they lived in a fairly rural area. It's believed that the shots that Jennifer heard were when Grant took Cody's gun outside and fired four rounds to collect the shell casings. She wouldn't have heard four rounds altogether when the family was killed because they were all killed some time apart. Now, I wondered why Grant would fire Cody's gun and swap out the shell casings instead of just using Cody's gun to commit the murders, and the only two reasons I can come up with are that Cody had his gun with him, so it wasn't available until he got home, or that Grant was just really dumb. Both options seem equally as likely. Another neighbor who supposedly heard gunshots was Rodney Funk. The defense called him to the stand to testify that he heard gunshots the following morning, but it was a complete clusterfuck. When the defense asked him if he heard gunshots the morning of January 25th, he said no. When they asked him if he heard a popping sound, he said yes. It turned into a bit of an argument between Rodney and the lawyer, who claimed his police report said he heard gunshots. He corrected the defense that he said he heard three popping noises at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and he told police that they could have been gunshots, but he didn't hear gunshots. He heard popping noises. He did confirm that the popping noises came from the direction of the Amato residence. The prosecutor cleared things up pretty quickly. What, what level or degree of, of certainty are you that what you heard... Well, gunshots. Do you know what I'm asking? If you have like a like a scale of one, you don't know what it is, and ten, you're absolutely certain it is were gunshots. What level of certainty do you think you're at? There, there weren't gunshots. There were just popping sounds. Now, what a gun sounds like inside a house being discharged, I have no idea. But it didn't sound like it. Just it was just an unusual hearing the popping sounds that early in the morning. Then later on. Noonish, uh, a friend called and said there was a homicide by your house. Then I'm trying to put two to two together. Okay, so so when you initially heard them, you didn't think they were gunshots? No, sir. It was just unusual hearing those popping sounds that early in the morning. Could have been a hammer, somebody working around on the property. I have no idea. The problem with what Rodney heard was that it was supposed to be at around 9 o'clock in the morning. 
that was after Cody should have been at work, and it was about the same time that Deputy Motorson was at the Amato home doing a welfare check. Deputy Motorson said he banged on the door and pounded on the windows. Is it possible that Rodney heard Deputy Motorson trying to get the attention of the Amatos? It's much more likely than the Amatos being shot at 9 a.m. the morning of January 25th. To this day, Grant Amato maintains his innocence. So, based on the claim that he left the house at about midnight, the prosecution describes what would have needed to happen in the house in order for the murders to not be carried out by Grant. Let's say it's at midnight, or one, or two, or three, or four, or five, or six. What does he find? He finds Margaret Amato sitting at her desk. We know she's sitting at her desk because dead bodies don't move on their own. Sitting at her desk, not doing anything. Not doing anything. Remember all that testimony about computers? The last time a human being touched that computer was 4.44 p.m. Remember that? 4.44 p.m. So that means Margaret Amato had to have been sitting at that desk. Where am I at now? Midnight? Six hours. Just sitting there. Doing nothing. Intruder walks in, pops her in the back of the head, puts a bullet hole right in the back of her head. Now, to play devil's advocate, she could have done other things for six hours and then just happened to sit back down at her computer when she got killed. I mean, it's possible. Then... Okay, now, dead bodies don't move themselves. Let's go to the next one. Chad the dad. Chad the dad's in the kitchen. Now, let's talk about that. Somehow this intruder kills Margaret runs across the other side of the house to where Chad is still wearing the clothes he was wearing when he left work. Remember that video at CVS? He's wearing those jeans, the black shoes, the white shirt, excuse me, the white socks, and I think it was like a gray shirt or a gray-brown shirt, right, with his lunchbox by the floor. So sometime between midnight and 6 a.m., Chad is standing in the kitchen with his head facing up, up to the cabinet. We know his head was facing up. Because if you remember the testimony from the medical examiner yesterday, she said the, the trajectory from the bullet was down to up. So what is that inference? Well, he's probably going towards a cabinet, you know, putting stuff away. So he's standing with his head to the cabinet, his back to where the shooter is. The shooter comes all the way around the back side of the house. And by the way, Chad apparently can't hear because he didn't hear the bullet ring out with his wife when she got shot. And bang, second shot of the night, of this mystery night. Bull in the back of his head. He goes down. Amy testified that that first shot wasn't necessarily fatal. He's still alive. And you can see, you don't need forensics to see those fingers in the blood. Those are his hands. His hands are covered. We'll talk about that later, too, because there was one finger that wasn't. But anyway, this intruder then, second shot, kills him. It's important to point out that the prosecutor says that Chad's hands were covered in blood except for one of his fingers. That was the finger that Grant used to unlock Chad's banking app. He picked up his dead father's hand, wiped the blood off one finger, and pressed it against his phone. Why? So he could try to get more money to feed his addiction to a cam girl. Then... Hey now, don't forget, there's three people in the house... So now somehow, 
Use your imagination. I mean, we're in the imaginary doubt section of my presentation. This intruder materializes immediately across that utility hallway and up against the wall, parallel to where Cody Amato is just hanging out in the garage doorway, wearing the clothes and the badge and his backpack that he was wearing the night before. He was standing right there in that doorway. Shoots him in the face. Then, this random intruder finds Cody's gun, goes outside to shoot four rounds, collects the shell casings, and swaps them out for the shell casings from the murders. He also rolls Chad's body over and puts a holstered gun backwards on his belt and cleans off one of his fingers? He does all this and leaves the house without taking anything else. He doesn't take any firearms, no computers, no wallets, no video game systems, not Margaret's diamond wedding ring, nothing. Just kills three people, does some weird shit to the scene, and leaves. The other thing that I think points to Grant as the murderer is the chicken. Grant told detectives during his interview that his mother had taken some chicken out of the freezer to defrost for dinner before he was kicked out of the house. If he left the house and everything was fine, why was the chicken found on the counter by investigators the next day? Why didn't the chicken get cooked, put back, or thrown away? There's no reason for that chicken to have not been cooked if Grant didn't kill his family members earlier in the day when authorities theorized he did. The fact is that he killed his mother and father before dinner time, which he said was usually around 7 p.m., and he killed Cody as soon as he walked in the door. And because of it, the chicken stayed on the counter and never got cooked. Grant Amato was found guilty of three counts of first-degree premeditated murder. He was eligible for the death penalty, but the jury wasn't able to come to a unanimous decision. The judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Of course, Grant Amato's defense lawyers have filed an appeal to the conviction citing ten little nitpicky complaints about decisions that the judge made during the trial. I haven't found any news of a decision by the District Court of Appeals, but the whole thing seems pretty weak. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will instantly take your browser to a Google search page. In the event the abuser is nearby, you can assure that you don't get caught trying to get help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Be safe. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can help us out by leaving us a review or rating on whatever podcast app you listen through. You can also subscribe to the show to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Also, remember that if you'd like to support the show, the easiest way is to donate a few bucks at Buy Me a Coffee or check out some of our merchandise at Teespring. You can find information on how to do that along with links to our social media at thisismonsters.com. Thanks again. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. 
Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Thoga erid chansig poshtiam fluo oil agus atoig dini fasta. Rotacetak ave in a hushkinish kumkushik. Togat poshte it a gavlin agashachmina dirk dish in an vaccine flu shrona oil serenashka. Is balak savalja agas efatok aton sock in either cushions. Kumbatlish on quidge elegant tiluk. Jane quinna let the hook dirk in her alta, nor let the foot the care. Tell all a sheriff oil like HSC punkai tul slash flu. O Imanoch's Nurture Vicious Luncher.